Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? Let's just start with verse 1, where Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Now, as I pointed out last week, this passage in John 15, primarily verses 1 to 8, is one of the most important in all the New Testament. It contains, through illustration, some of the great principles of the Christian life, abiding in Christ, the importance of fruit-bearing in the Christian life, the Father's work of pruning in His children's lives as a prerequisite to bearing more and more fruit, and it even touches uh, unanswered prayer uh, as uh, a blessed consequence of the Word of God abiding in our hearts. So a very full, very rich section. Now, I have to review a little bit from last week as we got new folks. I just can't dive in, so just bear with me. I tried to bring out last time that understanding the context of this section in John's Gospel, which we have labeled the Vine and Branches Discourse, is vitally important if we're going to get the proper interpretation. We have to know the context. Context is key to properly interpreting a passage, and that is uh, first and foremost to then uh, properly applying applying that passage in our lives. So as we said last time, uh, to get the correct interpretation of this passage, we need to kind of put ourselves in Jesus' place uh, that night and try to understand what was weighing most heavily on his heart and mind as he was only a few hours from the cross. When you're facing death, what comes to mind is you want to tell the people you love, those closest to you, what really matters. You're not going to talk about sports or the weather. This is the final thing. Now, this is before, his, before the cross. Of course, he did uh, speak to them uh, after his resurrection again. But right now, he's got some heavy things in his heart. And we need to understand that because it's key to interpreting this passage, all right? Um, none of his teachings were devoid of context. And again, guys, context is everything. So what was the context that birthed his vine and branches teaching? Well, as we talked about last week, we know that the father was on his mind that night because he talked quite a bit about his relationship with his heavenly father uh, earlier in the evening and how soon he would be going back to the father and how joyful he was at that prospect. We know that he had the 11 disciples on his mind that night. They were weighing heavy on his heart. We know that because he spent the better part of the 14th chapter comforting them. They were heavy on his mind. But we also know that he was thinking about Judas on that night. Earlier in the upper room, as he washed the disciples' feet, we read in chapter 13, verse 10, where Jesus said, He who has bathed, he who has bathed, only, needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Speaking of Judas, Judas was never saved. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But guys, the thought that one of those disciples who had appeared to be connected to him for the last three and a half years, in other words, saved, was only superficially connected to him, in other words, not saved, was definitely on his mind that night. Therefore, on that night, Jesus was thinking about the Father, whom he loved and who loved him in return. He was looking forward to going back 
to his father soon. He was also thinking about the, the 11 disciples whom he loved and who loved him in return. Those who were genuine and truly connected to him by saving faith. And he was also thinking about Judas that night, whom he loved but who didn't love him in return. Judas was a phony, uh, a uh, counterfeit believer, a deceiver. Uh, he was not really connected to Christ by saving faith. Uh, you understand that, right? There is faith and then there's saving faith. James said even the devil believes, but he's not going to heaven and his demons tremble. They all believe who Jesus is. The problem is saving faith is when you believe to the point of commitment. It's like a marriage. Before you got married, you might have thought this person that you were dating was the perfect spouse for you. And uh, you believe that with all your heart. But then you took it to the next step and you made a commitment to that person. You entered into marriage. That's what we're talking about. The Bible likens our relationship to Jesus, those of us who have saving faith, as those of us who have taken it to the next level. We have made a commitment to him. And that's what connects us to Christ. And that's what allows the life of God to flow from Jesus into our lives and then through our lives to an empty, hurting world. We become channels through which the Spirit flows. You can have faith, and a lot of folks go to church and have faith, but they're not born again. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But let me get back to this now. Therefore, I believe what we just said forms the background for this all-important teaching. And folks, it is all-important, very important. I believe that all of this was on the mind of Jesus that night as he led his disciples through the temple area on their way to the Mount of Olives. We talked about this last time. And as they came to the Golden Gate, the one that led out of the city and across the Kidron Valley, and that's where the Mount of Olives lay, as they approached the, came to the Golden Gate that led out of the city and seeing the grapevines, uh, grapevine carvings on them in the light of the full moon. Passover always took place during the full moon, that this became the impetus for the Lord giving them this discourse using the illustration of the vine and the branches. It shouldn't surprise us then that this illustration would contain references to all the people on Jesus' heart and mind that night, all those that had a relationship with him in some way, shape, or form, and that he would weave all of them into this illustration. That's the context. That's the key that he's weaving all of these people into this illustration. So in other words, verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine. That's easy. He, he said he was the true vine. Then in verse 1, he says, the father, he's the vine dresser. The 11 true disciples, he likened to branches that bear fruit, or what some have called Jesus branches in verses 2 and 5. Judas and all those who are like him are referred to the branches that don't bear fruit or what some have called Judas branches. In other words, phony or counterfeit disciples, people who look genuine but who are only superficially attached to Christ, verses 2 and 6, stress that. Now, guys, the whole passage is predicated on something Jesus had already stated something that he stated numerous times over the course of his ministry. We're at the end now. He's about to be crucified. All right? So, you know, his earthly ministry is basically over now. But he has stated this principle numerous times throughout the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He said it in Matthew 12. He said, you will know the true from the false because the true bear fruit. True disciples bear fruit. Those that 
don't bear fruit, he likened to thorns. Thorns don't bear fruit. Um, what he was saying is there's a lot of foliage in the church, a lot of thorns. A lot of folks that go to church but are not really connected to Christ, they're not true branches. They don't have the fruit of the Spirit growing through them and so on. So the whole passage is built on something Jesus had already taught earlier in his ministry. Now, just reviewing a little bit more from last time, verse 1, Jesus said he was the true vine. Again, very simply, I am the true vine. We're not guessing he told us that he was the true vine. And as we said last week, by saying this, he was likening the entire human race to vines and himself to, excuse me, to branches, the entire human race to branches and himself to the only true vine and is saying to people everywhere, I am the source of life, of nourishment, of fruitfulness and fulfillment. Many have attached themselves to the divines, quote unquote, things that they think are going to bring them life, satisfaction, fulfillment in life and so on. Um, but there are vines other than Jesus Christ, who is the source of life and fulfillment. We talked about this last week. Some people have attached themselves to money. It's all they think about, money, making money. Because in their minds, money is everything. Money is the, the key to happiness. Money is life. Others, education. I got nothing against education. Some people have turned it into an idol. Some people worship at the altar of education. If you don't have a degree in something, you ain't worth talking to in their mind. Others, it's sex. Everything is sex. Their whole life revolves around sex. To them, sex is key to having a satisfied, fulfilling life. And as we talked about, some attach themselves to fame, others to political power, other social connections, business success, and then you have a variety of religious affiliations that people attach themselves to. These are some of the many vines that people have attached themselves to looking for happiness and fulfillment. But as Jesus is saying by implication, they are all false vines. If he's the only true vine, every other vine's a false vine. Very simple, right? Only Jesus is the true vine. Only he is the source of eternal or spiritual life. In fact, the Bible calls it Zoe life. Remember how John opened his gospel? In Jesus is life, and the life was the light of men. And the word was Zoe. It's the word we translated eternal life, um, spiritual life. It's the life of God. That's what it is. And uh, this is life in all of its fullness and richness. As opposed to the, another Greek word for life, bios. We get a word biology from that word. And that just simply means life as opposed to non-life. A person could be in a hospital bed, hooked up to machines that are keeping this person alive. And that's it. They have life, but they're not living. And that's the idea. A lot of folks in our society, they're alive, but they're not living. They're not living the life God wants them to. Life in all of its fullness and richness and blessing. And that doesn't happen until you accept Christ and are connected to him. And the life of God begins to flow from Jesus into your life. Of course, that life starts now, eternal life, and it winds up being relocated into heaven someday, where it continues for eternity, right? But this life, guys, again, only flows from Jesus into and through those who are connected to him by saving faith. These are the Jesus branches we talked about, as opposed... To all other people, many of whom who think they're attached to Christ because of their religious affiliation or their denominational uh, membership. Not that people in denominations can't be saved, many are. I'm just saying that, you know, as a Roman Catholic, I thought 
because I was a Roman Catholic. I was connected to God. I, I was in. I had been baptized. I had been confirmed. I went to Mass. When I was growing up in grade school, went to Catholic grade school, did the Stations of the Cross every day at lunch, uh, lit the candles, prayed the rosaries, kept the feast days. Hey, I was in. I was connected to God. I didn't realize I was a Judas branch. Now, God wanted me to be a Jesus branch, and eventually through the Holy Spirit, who opened my eyes to all of this, I became a Jesus branch along with my wife. We accepted Christ. We went from religion to relationship. Very important distinction. A lot of folks have religion, but you need a relationship. That's what we're talking about. The vital relationship between, as Jesus put it, the branch and the vine. It's that spiritual connection that only comes when you're born again. All right. This morning, I want to focus our attention on the work of the Father and Jesus' illustration of the vine and the branches. So again, in verse 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, Andrew Murray said something I want to just paraphrase. And if you haven't ever read anything by Andrew Murray, he is a fantastic devotional writer. Uh, very simple, very, uh, he, um, he encourages, um, just very devotional. Pick up one of his books and, and, and see what I mean, okay? But he said on this passage, he said, look, before Jesus Christ ever talked about abiding in him or bearing fruit, the first thing he said, he got their eyes toward heaven, his disciples, by telling them, you are connected to me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, and the Father is the vine dresser. He went on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, sure. Let's use an apple tree, for example, because we're not really orchard people. We don't really have grapevines in our backyard. Yeah, maybe an apple tree or an orange tree. I don't know. But you take an apple tree and you cut the branch off and leave it on the ground, it's not going to bear fruit anymore. It's going to wither and die. Jesus said, look, if you're not really connected, to, if you're only superficially connected, you're going to church, um, and you're not really connected, you're not going to bear fruit. You're going to wither and die. And, and Murray said, look, it's very important that we understand the Father, Jesus wanted us to know right up front that everything we need in life comes from God. Every, it's not about trying harder. Uh, it's about abiding longer. That's the whole point of John 15, verses 1 to 8. Because when we abide in Christ, stay close to him, feed on his word, stay in fellowship with him, the fruit comes naturally. You don't even have... You don't, who walks through an orchard and hears the trees grunting, straining, bearing those apples and the fruit, right? It happens naturally. As long as the branch is hanging in there, it's going to happen, right? As long as you're hanging in there and just loving Jesus and connected to him through the word and prayer, you're going to bear spiritual fruit. You don't have to do anything. And, and, and that's what the Bible is teaching Andrew Murray is, 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 is talking about. Uh, very important that we understand that. Um, too many Christians are focused on bearing fruit. They should be focused on abiding in Christ. That's the real. We'll develop that more as we go along in this series. But once again, guys, the Christian life is not lived. It's not a life lived through hard work and raw determination. It's a life in total dependence and calm assurance of our Father's care and strength. Now, since we're we weren't living back in those days, and we don't most of us, I don't think, know much about growing grapes and working with grapevines um, let me just give you a quick and i mentioned this last week let me just re refresh your memories in this first point the work of the vine dresser 
In the first century, a vine dresser would have two duties, two primary duties. First of all, to cut off the branches that weren't bearing fruit. That's what Jesus said here in, uh, in verse 2. Uh, I am the vine, verse 1, the fo my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And guys, this was done because any branch on the vine that wasn't bearing fruit was sapping energy away from the branches that were bearing fruit. The branch was useless, right? If it's not bearing fruit, get rid of it, cut it off. Because that would allow the life of that vine to concentrate in the branches that are bearing fruit. The result would be they would bring forth more fruit and bigger fruit. And of course, if that's the goal of working with vines, because I, you know, that, that was the goal, fruit, bigger fruit, more fruit, you wanted to do everything in your power to make sure that your vines had every opportunity to do that very thing. Now, what about the fruitless vines, okay? Um, well, verse 6, he talks about this. Jesus goes on to tell us what happens to the branches that don't bear fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, in other words, doesn't bear fruit, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, let me just stop and say this one more time. So many pastors, God love them, and I'm not saying I'm right in everything. I, I definitely could be wrong. But so many pastors have taught this passage and have taught that what Jesus is talking about here is if you're a Christian and you don't bear fruit or you stop bearing fruit and backside, you're going to get cut off. And if you don't repent, you're going to hell. That is not what Jesus is talking about. The branches that bear fruit are all Christians. Look, guys, every Christian bears fruit. So not every Christian bears the same fruit as another Christian. But if a person is really saved, they're really connected to Christ, I don't care if you have to look through their life with a fine-tooth comb, you'll find a couple of shriveled grapes somewhere. There, that fruit's there, somewhere. The branches that bear fruit are the Christians, are the true believers. The branches that don't bear fruit are the superficial Judas branches, church-going people that don't have saving faith. They have a form of godliness. Deny the power they're with, right? They're the ones that are going to eventually be cut off and burned. They're the ones that are in view here. But look, sometimes we forget that Jesus was talking to Jewish men. I mean, they made up the bulk of his disciples, right? I mean, I think all of them probably were Jewish in the beginning. Of course, they spread out over the world after Pentecost, and many Gentiles got saved. But in talking to Jewish men about grapevines that don't bear fruit and are cut off and thrown in the fire to be burned, they knew right away he was referring to judgment because they knew what the Old Testament prophets had said. Turn to Ezekiel 15. And of course, God was talking here through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel, who was, that was so bad, God had sent them so many prophets, but they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't repent. And so now God says, the time has come for judgment. Uh, no more talking, no more opportunities to repent. I gave you every chance I was gonna, I'm going to give you. 
And so he's pronouncing judgment. And listen to the language he uses, right? Ezekiel 15, verse 6. Therefore says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I, excuse me, when I set my face against them, thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. You could put the word America in there and not do damage to the passage because what happened to Israel for their unfaithfulness and immorality and perversion many years ago, we're seeing the same thing replicated in America. These words I'm convinced God could speak and is speaking now to this nation. So first of all, guys, we, we have the work of the vine. The, first of all, the work of the vine dresser was to cut off branches that weren't bearing fruit. And then the end of verse 2, to prune the branches that were bearing fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The vine dresser would prune the branches that did, that did bear fruit, cutting off what was called the little sucker shoots. Uh, these were the little growths that came up from the branch. Uh, they never grew <coughs> beyond a, a, a two or three inches. They never grew into a, a real offshoot of the branch, never, of course, would produce any fruit, but they were there sapping energy away from the other parts of the branch that were bearing fruit. So the vine dresser would take his pruning knife and he would go around the vineyard and he would take and we, he would cut off these little sucker shoots. And again, the idea was to concentrate all of the growing energy into the branch that, you know, the area of the branch that was bearing fruit so that that branch, that area would produce the most fruit possible, taking away anything that would sap away the branch's energy, the growing life of the branch, uh, and thereby diminishes fruit-bearing capacity. And um, what Jesus is saying is this is exactly what the Father desires from the lives of his children. He stresses that in verses 2 and verse 8, that we bear fruit, more fruit, and ultimately much fruit. I, I said to first service, I said, do you realize that the entire Christian life is about us bearing fruit? Now, I know who you talk to, depending on who you talk to, people got all kinds of ideas um, what Christianity is all about, uh, what it means to be a Christian, what our purpose in life is here on, uh, you know, on the earth, and so on. Um, but what, very simply, what Jesus is saying is the the whole goal of the Father is to work in our lives that we bear the most fruit possible. The most fruit possible. Because here's the thing. A lot of Christians don't realize this because the thinking today is not where it should be. God is always working for our eternal best, not our temporal comfort. Now, if you don't get that in your mind, you're going to be very frustrated in your walk. So a lot of folks think that God exists to bless them, prosper them keep them healthy, make them wealthy, right? They don't realize that the whole goal of the Christian life is to bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, that we might have an abundant entry into the kingdom of God. That's what God's working for. He loves you so much, he wants you to have the most abundant eternity possible, the most rewards. 
But a lot of folks have that turned around. They think the whole goal is for God to lay up treasures for them on earth. The earth becomes the focus. This life. I'm talking Christians now. You have whole movements in the church that are, are geared to teaching how that God wants you healthy and wealthy and have the nicest house in town, drive the nicest cars, uh, the most successful business, and so on. That's the whole, and any adversity, well, that's of the devil. Don't receive that. Rebuke it. We'll talk about that more in a second. See how the devil gets in people's minds, and really, he turns around what the Bible says and uh, makes it something completely different. But the whole point of our Christian life from the Father's vantage point is that we bear fruit and much fruit. Now, to accomplish this work, the Father carefully prunes our lives as Christians, uh, trimming away sins and other distractions. And let me just say this. A distraction doesn't have to be an overtly sinful behavior. It can be anything that just takes time and energy away from the Lord. Not that we can't have outside interests and hobbies and things like that. Uh, I knew a guy years ago, young Christian guy, just got married. And um, he's playing softball five nights a week. It's a great gig if you can get it, right? So five nights a week he's playing. His wife is home, home alone. She's lonely. She's unhappy. Where's my husband? So on Five nights a week, told this, not going to Bible study, not hanging out with other Christians, right? So what does God do? Let's him get injured. Kind of like Jacob threw his hip out of joint, right? Now the guy couldn't play softball. Guy says, you know what? Softball's not evil, but you're making it evil. So now i got to take it away for a while so that you can focus your energy on what's important, which is your marriage and your service to God, right? Um, I was telling first service that I had a pastor say to me years ago, that uh, a family approached him after a Sunday service and said, well, Pastor, we won't see you for the next three months. It's soccer season. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with soccer. You know, uh, Luis Palau, who I think just went to be with the Lord, the Argentinian evangelist, right? Ar Argentina's big into soccer, okay? And he played soccer. And when the World Cup was in America years ago, uh, he was on the radio. I remember him saying this. He said, look, uh, soccer makes a great goal. It makes a lousy God. It's not wrong to be involved in sports. That's a great goal, and you can learn teamwork and, uh, and, uh, and uh, discipline and all that. But if that becomes an idol, then it's, it's got to go. It's got to go. But, you know, the Father's trying to prune away all kinds of, all kinds of hindrances and even evil, ha evil habits, of course, uh, to allow Christians to achieve, as we said, maximum fruit-bearing capacity. Now, one author uh, said this on the subject. He said, and I quote, How does the Father prune us? Well, sometimes he simply uses the word to convict and cleanse us. Sometimes he must chasten us. Read Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 11. Uh, at the time, this discipline, uh, it hurts when he removes something precious from us. But as the spiritual crop is produced, we see that the Father knew what he was doing, end quote. One of the most effective ways the Father prunes a Christian's life is with trials, troubles, um, adversities, uh, even allowing pain and suffering. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10? He said that because I, God gave me so many revelations, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. 
And he said, because God gave me so many revelations, he sent uh, an, an angel, uh, a, a, a minister of the devil, to uh, buffet me, lest I get, you know, my head get big, you know, and I get all proud and puffed up, right? And this thing, he called it a stake for his flesh. This fallen angel was hassling Paul. And Paul said, I prayed three times to the Lord to take it from me. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect, Paul, in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, when I knew it was from God, I rejoiced. Bring it on, Lord. I'll take adversity. I'll take heartache. I'll take pain. As long as it will help me to grow in Christ, because when I'm weak, uh, then I'm strong. When I am, you know, weak in my own strength, then I have to rely on God's strength. That's where the real power comes from. Now, guys, this is not to say that every Christian who is ill or who is suffering in some way is necessarily being pruned by the Father. But in many cases, the Father allows trials and adversities to come our way in order to remove from our lives anything that is hindering our walk and our relationship with Him and, of course, with the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Things that are ultimately diminishing our fruit-bearing ability, He wants to get rid of those things. Now, here's the thing. Unfortunately, pruning has to be done with a knife. And therefore, pruning is at least uncomfortable and often painful. Uh, there are times when God is pruning us that we might be prone to wonder if God knows what he's doing. Because, Lord, it hurts. Why am I going through this? This is really a painful situation. And, you know, in some of our weaker moments, we think, Father, do you really know what you're doing in my life? Sometimes we wonder why God seems to be doing an awful lot of pruning on my life, and other Christians seem to be skating. Lord, why are you always picking on me? Why am I always being pruned? So-and-so never gets pruned. And if God could, would speak verbally, I think he would say, you don't know what I'm doing in their life. I know what I'm doing in your life. I'm working in every child of mine's life individually. I have a work for each one of them. And the greater the work, the deeper the adversity. Like somebody has said, the deeper the valley, the higher the mountaintop. Uh, I think it was uh, Tozer who said, God cannot use somebody greatly until he first hurts them deeply. Now, marginal Christians are horrified at something like that. But spirit-filled Christians understand what Tozer's talking about because it's right out of the Word, right? We need to trust the Father. God knows what He's doing. I'll tell you, the valuable lessons He teaches us through suffering and trials and troubles is that it awakens us to what needs to be changed, doesn't it? You know, we're going along, just sailing, cruising. Life is great, you know. Not a, I got a care in the world, you know. And God goes, you're way too comfortable. There are things in your life you're not dealing with anymore. You're just coasting now. And so God brings trials, right? And that awakens us to the reality. We're going to make some changes. There are some things that need to be added to my life. Make it easy. More God. And there are some things that need to be removed from my life make it easy, less world. That's what it boils down to, right? The Father causes this pruning 
in many ways. It takes many different forms. Everything from sickness to financial hardships. A lot of folks are out of job, uh, without a job. It's very stressful. It can be the loss of a loved one or a, a good, dear friend. Pruning can come through things like frustration, disappointment, pressure, even through stress. Uh, I heard a story of a, a guy, Christian guy, who had a, a business. He, he built a business. This is going back in the 80s. And he was making six figures in the 80s, okay? Very prosperous business, computer business, I think it was. Computers were just starting to come into their own, and he was already uh, there, late 80s, early 90s. And um, believer. And all of a sudden, one day, his business starts dwindling for no reason. And after a couple of months, it implodes. It, he, he had to close up shop. Didn't know what God was doing. Now, he said, I was making all kinds of money. I was miserable. I had everything money could buy. I wasn't happy. And then after my business was closed, a lot of stress, he said, after my business closed down, I began to seek God, and God opened the door for me to be a missionary. I forgot where it was. He said, I, I have nothing. I, I got nothing to my name. I'm the happiest I've ever been. God used the stress in his life to, to prune him and redirect him so that he's bearing all kinds of fruit now for the Lord. Look, it's important that we understand that the Father prunes our lives not because he loves to hurt us, but because he loves to grow us so that he can ultimately use us in greater ways. You all know Pastor and author David Jeremiah, right? You've all probably all heard of him, most of you. Well, Pastor Jeremiah dealt with cancer years ago. He came through it. God brought him through it, right? So he's uniquely qualified to speak on this subject. I'll read you what he said. He said, the gardener is loving and devoted. Somebody has said the father is never closer to the vine than when he is pruning it. He said, that statement is right on the mark. You will find this truth consistently affirmed in the lives of wise, godly people who have faced dis disruptive moments in their lives. They will look at you and say without hesitation, never in all my life have I sensed the closeness and, and uh, provision of God as I did when I came through that bend in the road, whatever that bend was, cancer or something else. Never before have I been more fruitful than I have been since I came through that bend in the road, end quote. Look, guys, don't turn against God when trials come. He hasn't forsaken you. Sometimes we think, as Christians, because we're going through a difficult time. Everything is falling apart. Uh, you know, I mean, just our walk is so dry. Uh, our relationships are failing around us. Uh, we're empty, and it just, or we're going through a physical crisis, or, or a financial crisis, or, or a relational crisis, and so on. We're just, our lives are just really hurting. And the devil's right there to whisper in your ear, you see, God's forsaking you. He doesn't love you anymore, because you're a lousy Christian. That's all a lie. That's all a lie from the devil. He waits until we're at our weakest, and then runs over and kicks us, and whispers in our ear, you're getting what you deserve, because God is done with you. When all the while, God is preparing you for a greater work. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I know what I'm doing. And it's never to, to destroy you. It's always to build you and use you in greater ways, so that you might have an abundant entry into the kingdom of heaven. All right, so the, the work of the vine dresser, right? To cut off the branches that don't bear fruit, prune those that are bearing fruit. What is the tool of the vine dresser? 
Well, it's very simply in those days, a pruning knife. You can Google this, they probably still have them. Um, but a pruning knife back then is what they used. One author said the pruning knife may hurt now and then, but it's worth it. Well, is it? Depends on where your walk with God is. But have you ever thought about what the Father's pruning knife actually is? Now, someone said, we just said it. Suffering, adversity, hardships, right? Painful circumstances. Listen, those things are involved in the process of pruning. But I think the vine dresser's knife, the actual knife, is the Word of God. Is the Word of God. Again, Andrew Murray said, and I quote, What is the pruning knife of this heavenly gardener? It is often said to be affliction, but that's not the first thing it is. How would it then fare with many who have long seasons free from adversity? Or with someone whom God appears to shower down kindness all their life long? No, it is the word of God that is the knife, sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and is, a, and is quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is only when affliction leads to this, dis, dis, uh, to this discipline of the word that it becomes a blessing. The lack of this heart cleansing through the word is the reason why affliction is so often unsanctified, wasted. You know the old saying, you know, your trials can make you bitter or better. So a lot of folks waste trials. God is using them in profound ways, or at least he wants to. But they're so busy feeling sorry for themselves. Oh, woe is me. God hates me. You know, God doesn't love me. Like little kids throw themselves on the ground, stomping their feet. You know, like, and this is what, you know, this is Christianity today for the most part. He said, not even Paul's thorn in the flesh could become a blessing until Christ said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. When Christ said that, then, of course, Paul realized the danger of self-exaltation, and it made him willing to rejoice in his infirmities, end quote. So, guys, the actual pruning in our lives is done through the Word of God. Jesus said that in verse 3. He said, you are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Interesting. The word prunes in verse 2 and clean in verse 3 both come from the same Greek word. It's the word we get our English word catharsis from. Catharsis. And so verses 2 and 3 read, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, catharsis, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Guys, it's the same Greek word that Jesus used in the upper room while they were all observing the Passover, actually before the Passover, where he went around washing the disciples' feet. We just read it. And John 13, verse 10, Jesus said, uh, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, because he was talking about Judas there. And, and in that context, in chapter 13, um, the context is salvation. You are, you are saved, in other words, cleansed from sin, but not all of you, because Judas, of course, again, was never really saved. When Jesus said in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, uh, I believe first and foremost, he was referring to the cleansing that came when these men received him. 
as their Savior. In other words, the cleansing from sin that came at the time of salvation. That's true, again, John 13, 10. But I also think that he's referring to, in addition to that, to an ongoing cleansing from sin that, we, that would be an everyday occurrence. Now, we talked about this a lot when we were in chapter 13. And again, in, in chapter 13, verse 10, he said, because they weren't washing each other's feet. They were about ready to eat the Passover, but nobody would wash each other's feet. That was a common courtesy, because you reclined in those days on one side at a 45-degree angle to a block of wood on the floor. That was the, ta the table. They didn't sit on elevated tables on chairs. They reclined on one side on a pillow, and they would eat with the other hand. So uh, they were all lined up at a 45-degree angle around the table, which meant your face wasn't too far from somebody's feet. Now, when he came to Peter, Peter was horrified because that was the job of the lowliest servant to wash other people's feet. The feet were considered by the Jewish people to be the dirtiest part of the body. That was the part of the body that came in contact with the world. You know, the, only the lowliest servants, servant would wash feet. When Jesus came to Peter, Peter was horrified. and said, Lord, you're, you're, you're never going to wash my feet. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter said, okay, well, then I'll take a bath. And that's when Jesus said, Peter, you're already, you've already bathed. You don't need to be washed again. See, in those days, guys, when a Jew got up in the morning, they took a complete bath. The Greek word was luo, to be completely cleansed, right? But then as they walked through the day on dirt roads with open sandals, their feet got dirty. And again, when they entered into a house to maybe have a meal with somebody, it was customary for the person, if they were wealthy enough to have a servant there to wash feet, or if nobody was there to wash feet, to have a pitcher of water in a basin that uh, the traveler can wash their own feet. Jesus is picking up on this, and that's where, in the Greek, it comes through, right? He said, look, Peter, you are already cleansed. Luo, you are completely, you're saved. If you're saved, you don't need to be washed again of your sins. You're saved forever. So what happens then? Well, after you're saved, as you walk through this filthy world, right, your walk gets defiled. Come on, let's be honest, right? You're at work, dirty jokes, uh, you know, the office gossip. You're driving to work in the billboards with half-naked women and other things. You're, it gets into your head. Your mind gets defiled. Your walk gets defiled. So what do you do? You come home and you bathe in the water of the Word, Ephesians 5.26 that we wash in the water of the word. This is an ongoing thing. No, we're not bathing all over. We're already saved. We're just cleansing our walk, so to speak, that we stay close in fellowship with the Lord. Now, look, I know you, some of you are thinking, hold on a minute. Time out. I thought you said God uses adversities to prune our lives. And now you're saying it's the word and not adversities. I'm confused. While it is true that he uses adversities in the process of pruning, the actual cutting is done by the word. You say, well, then what are the, what are the uh, adversities for? What, what are they all about? Think about it. Every knife, and I'm thinking about the vine dresser now and the pruning knife. Every pruning knife had a blade and a handle, of course. A handle. And the vine dresser would hold the handle, which would allow him to, the ability to press the blade onto the branch 
to prune it. It was the handle that allowed him to put pressure on the branch that he might remove things that were sucking away energy from that branch, right? Guys, adversities are the handle that God uses to apply the pressure of the word to our lives, allowing him to cut away garbage and prune us to bear more fruit. One author rightly says, and I quote, it is generally thought that our trials and troubles purge us. I'm not sure of that. They are certainly lost on some. It is the word, verse 3, that prunes the Christian. Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction makes us ready to feel the word. But the true pruner is the word in the hand of the great vine dresser, end quote. Look, you all know this. I'll give you two verses, and it will bring this to a close. Out of Psalm 119. First of all, verse 67. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And verse 71, it is good for me to have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Have you ever noticed how much more sensitive you are to the word when trouble comes, right? Think about that. I mean, everything's great. You get up through your morning devotions. You're having fun. You're just, you know. It's just, okay, great, Lord, praise you. This is wonderful. Yeah, okay, great. You know, And you have your little devotion, and you move on, right? What about when you are suffering some great adversity, a trial, some trouble? You, you're like, get out of my way. Where's my Bible? You know, and you open that thing up, and you're looking for any little lifeline. God, speak to me. I need something, Lord. You know, I, I, I can't do this. I'm, you know, and, and every little thing, oh, thank you, Lord. And you're just taking the, it's your lifeline, right? It's the adversity that opens your, that's the Holy Spirit using the adversity like a handle and using it to press the word to your heart. That's when it's going to do its most good. Adversity is not pleasant, but it's so needed in our lives. The object in this pruning, guys, is never to condemn, never to condemn, but to chasten, to correct, to challenge, and ultimately to bring about change. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, the Spirit of God wants to conform us more and more every day into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. That's what the pruning is all about. That's what affliction is all about. That's ultimately what fruit bearing is all about. That we be more and more like Jesus. That we have an abundant entry into the kingdom of heaven. All right. Let me just end by saying this. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many professing Christians today, or I should say for many professing Christians today, Everything I've just taught you this morning on the subject of biblical fruit-bearing is as irrelevant and meaningless to them as you can comprehend. Listen, hear me out. Something has been going on in the church the last 10 years. It started before that. I have a pastor friend. And he has a youth group. Him and his wife meet with the youth. I'm talking 13 to 18-year-olds. And it's like, I don't know, 30, 35 young people. It's not a small group, right? And every week they go and they sit around and he's teaching them the word. 
And he said, and for the last year or year and a half, I come home and said to my wife, something's wrong. I, I'm not connecting with these kids. I'm, I'm giving them the word, same word that he connected with when he was a teenager and came to this church and got saved. But he said, these, I'm not connected with these kids. I don't know what to make of it. And so he just was praying. And then he came across a George Barna poll recently. George Barna, of course, is the Christian pollster that he interviews professing Christians to find out trends and things that they're into and so on, right? George Barna has identified the reason. So many professing Christians, and many of them are younger professing Christians, aren't growing in their faith or have any desire to serve the Lord in ministry. He said that the American church has been, these are his words, infected with a pseudo-Christian ideology called moralistic therapeutic deism. He said a watered-down, feel-good, fake view of Christianity that is the most popular worldview today in the church. That took me back. I read the article. Just what is moralistic therapeutic deism, you asked? Well, come on back. Uh, we'll talk about it briefly. I didn't want to talk about it at all. I just came across it last week. I, I didn't even hear about it. And, and I, you know, read the article and I did a little research. And I wasn't going to touch it because, you know, and then I'm doing this study on fruit. And of course... We just talked about what it takes to bear fruit, right? How the Father's going to prune, excuse me, prune your life, take stuff away that is sucking energy away from Jesus, right? And all these things. And honestly, a lot of young people are listening to this going, what? God's going to cut me? God's going to hurt me? I'm out of here. And I see a constant stream, especially of younger Christians. They come here for a week or two, they're gone. I am not connecting with them at all. You know why? It's because of the word therapeutic in that phrase. They are looking to church to be a glorified self-help program. It's all about them. Church is a therapeutic session. It's not about denying self, picking up your cross, uh, following in Jesus' footsteps, bearing fruit for the glory of God. So, No, it's none of that. It's all about Feed me, make me feel good about myself, uh, build up my self-image, uh, give me a happy life, pastor, whatever you can do. Whatever, just tell me what is going to make me happy and so on. Guys, Satan has infiltrated the church in these last days and has shifted the focus from Christ to self. Now, it hasn't happened overnight. It's been a long time in the making. It's come to fruition today, in this day. Why has he done this? Because he hates the church. And if he can change the focus from Christ to self, he can neutralize the church's effectiveness. He knows his time is short. He knows Jesus is coming back soon. So what does he do? He, at a time when Christians should be the most passionate to bear fruit, the most passionate to serve the Lord, because the kingdom is coming, he's got everybody turned inward. Instead of looking upward, glory of God, and then outward, going into all the world preaching the good news, 
Everyone's looking, not everyone, but so many are looking inward, feeling sorry for themselves. Again, looking at church not as a place where I can learn how to die to self, take up my cross, follow in Jesus' footsteps, serve the Lord, bear the most fruit for his glory, enter into the kingdom with an abundant entrance of rewards. No, it's all about helping to lay up for myself treasures right now in the earth. Uh, teach me, how, again, how I can be happy and fulfilled. And he, This pastor said, do you know how many of my kids in my youth group are on medications? I'm not against medications. If a doctor prescribes it for you, you need it, fine. But apparently, almost every young person in his group, their parents felt they needed medication. And so their whole Christian view, worldview, revolves I can't, I can't go to Bible study tonight. Um, my mental disorder won't allow me to do too much with church or this or that. He, this is the, everything revolves around now their disability. Um, their, their mental disability. Everything focuses around that. Which again, when they come to church, it's a therapy session. And pastor, you, you know, I'm, I'm giving you, you know, half hour some of us are longer than others you got a half hour 45 make me feel good if you don't i'll find another church that will what they don't realize is when you go through the bible verse by verse you will get everything you need for life and godliness right i mean if they would only understand they come here and they hear me talk about john 15 fruit Cutting, pruning, it hurts, and so on. They're like, ah, I'm out of here. They're gone. They don't realize there's a context. And it started in chapter 13, where Jesus said, you see what I have done? I've washed your feet. You wouldn't wash each other's feet, so I took the role of a servant. I washed your feet. If you want to be happy in life, do what I have done. Be a servant to each other. You'll find happiness as a byproduct of a life oriented toward God and others, helping others. No, but they, they bypass that. They, they listen to the devil who is trying to get them to pursue happiness as a direct pursuit. And you'll never find it as a direct pursuit because it's all about self then. It comes as a byproduct when you attach yourself to Christ with genuine saving faith and hang in there, draw your life from Jesus, follow his example, the one who didn't come to do his will, but the will of the Father that sent him. He died to self, went to the cross, and died for all of us. And that's the life he wants us to live. A life that's dead to self and alive towards God and helping others. If you live that life, you will find happiness and joy. If you don't, and you make yourself the focus You'll run around trying to find happiness everywhere and find it nowhere. So we'll come on back in a couple of weeks. Next week, Pastor Ray Carter is going to be teaching. You're going to enjoy that. Um, it just, let me just say this. I just, sometime, and I was going over my notes before I came to teach. And I'm thinking, Lord, I know this is your word, and I know this is what the passage is, and I want to be faithful to teaching it what you have here. But honestly, Lord, I feel like it's going to go in one ear and out the other. Not so much with everyone here, but maybe. I don't know where you're coming from. Um, but, Lord, I feel sometimes like I'm 
I'm talking over here and they're listening over here. We're not connecting. We're, you know, I'm talking because I'm assuming you want to grow in your walk. You want to bear fruit. You want to serve the Lord. You want an abundant interest. And they're not even on that plane. And sometimes, and I told the Lord, Lord, sometimes I feel like I'm trying to describe color to somebody that was born blind or how, the, how beautiful a concerto sounds to somebody that has been deaf, deaf their entire life. How do you do that, Lord? Well, God's got to change the heart. God's got to work to energize, to cause people to move from self to Christ. That's the only life worth living. And so we'll try to tackle some more of this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's not worth it, but just so you have a working knowledge of what's out there, okay? And we'll, we'll see that next time. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to find our strength and nourishment and direction in your word every day. Father, please help your church, Lord Jesus. We need you to pour your spirit out, to bring revival to your church and a great awakening to this land. Lord, the devil's got so many people twisted all up. And now church is all about them. Instead of being all about you, Lord, give us grace to walk in purity, to walk in truth, and to live the lives that you have called us to live. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.